Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. So if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open it to Romans 8. If you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to use one of the ones in front of the chair in front of you. And you're welcome to keep that Bible if, it, if you don't have one. And you can find Romans chapter 8 uh, if you're not used to looking up verses in the Bible. And that Bible is in front of you. You can find it either on page 944 or 740. As you're finding Romans 8, let me also mention that uh, for these next few months, I think we'll be in Romans 8 probably through Thanksgiving, and then we'll, we'll uh, start a new series in December, looking probably just at the person and work of Christ as we prepare for Christmas and the Advent season. But we'll be in Romans 8 for these next few months, and so one thing we're encouraging the congregation, all of you to do, is to consider memorizing all or part of this glorious chapter, and like we've done in the past several times, maybe if uh, on a Sunday morning we may just take a little 30 seconds, 45 seconds before we get into the message and just have somebody who's bold and courageous stand up and maybe give us a few verses. Just a few verses, all right? Because I mean, I got, a, I got a sermon to preach here, so don't give us the whole thing. But will maybe the sermon text that we are going over that Sunday, uh, as we work through Romans 8, you can stand up and recite it, one or two if you're bold. And to help you with that, we have prepared these little cards that have all 39 verses uh, of Romans 8 on them. You can find them on the back table back there. We'd love for you to pick it up and just use this as a memorization guide. You will spend your time well over the next few weeks if you commit Romans 8 to memory. And then also, our community groups are going to be working through this chapter and to, as a discussion guide. We are in our community groups using a book on Romans chapter 8 that is written by a highly respected pastor and professor and author. His name is Derek Thomas, and he's written a book called How the Gospel Brings Us All the Way Home. And so he is, uh, we've written, he's written this book, and we're selling it in our resource center just for cost. I think we've got about 10 or 15 copies in there. You can also buy it online at Amazon. I'd encourage you to get this book and read it. And uh, it, will, it will really bless you. By the way, Derek Thomas is a professor. He's a pastor in Columbia, South Carolina. But he's one of the seminary professors for Will Hawk and, and Robert Ward up at Atlanta at Reformed Theological Seminary. And they get to go hear him every now and again. He has a wonderful Welsh accent. I just like to hear the guy talk. He's a fantastic communicator of the gospel. You'd do well to pick up that book. All right, let's get into it. I'm going to read, and then we're going to pray. And then we're going to work through, begin working through this beautiful chapter. Now, as I've said before, I know that I have made you a bit of an outline-dependent congregation. So I'm going to tell you where I'm going. I'm just going to give you three handlebars to hold on to for today, okay? This is our outline that's going to form our march through the first four verses of Romans chapter 8. We are going to look at where we stand, how we got here, and where we go from here. All right, so those are our three handlebars. Where we stand, how we got here, and where we go from here. I think that's what is occupying Paul's heart as he writes these four verses. Let me read the text and pray. Friends, these are some of the sweetest words ever written. There is, therefore, now, 
no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit well pray pray with me that the lord will help us well, Father, as, as we have prayed several times recently, I pray this old prayer of the church that what we know not, teach us. What we have not and truly need, I pray that you would grant us. And what we are not, we pray that you would make us by the power of your holy word in the presence of your Holy Spirit that comes alongside your word. Do these things, I pray, Lord, for the glory of your name, for the eternal joy of your people, and for the salvation of those who have not yet trusted in Christ. And it's in his name that I pray these things. Amen. All right, let's look again at that first verse there, verse 1 of Romans 8. Paul says, There is... Therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we need to stop and pause and think about why he put that word therefore in there. If you were a child of the 70s like I was, and I guess still am, you grew up on Schoolhouse Rock. Remember those little sayings on Saturday morning? By the way, kids, are you kids now with you know, all these cartoon networks? When we were coming up back in the day... <laughs> I mean, cartoons were only on on Saturday morning, at least in my memory, and you had to turn the channel, and it was like from U to 13, and you had to actually get up. You had to get off the couch and turn. I was my dad's remote control. <laughs> but there was this thing called Schoolhouse Rock, and remember those little songs, and we've sung it here before, that word, therefore, is a conjunction. It's putting together two thoughts. Remember that? Conjunction, junction. What's your function? <laughs> remember that? So why, why is therefore there? When we see that word, especially in Paul's logic in his letters, we need to ask why therefore. There's a reason that it is there. What is it there for? Well, he is saying that word because he's connecting this whole corpus, this whole body of thought that he's been building in this greatest letter that has ever been written. So here is my attempt in about a minute and a half to summarize the first seven chapters of Romans for you. He begins in Romans 1, and he starts with his argument that all have sinned, all the Gentiles have sinned, even by the natural law of the universe, that Gentiles, even those that weren't God's people in the Old Testament, should be able to just look at the universe and see that there's a natural law, that there's a God, and that should push them towards, towards worshiping God, but they have rejected him. And the Jews are no better. In Romans 2, he says that even the Jews who have received the specific revelation of God, the very written law of God, they too have rejected God. And he summarizes in Romans chapter 3 that that means that all humanity, Jew and Gentile, all of us, 
stand condemned that all of our mouths are silent and all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But midway through Romans chapter 3, the heart of the gospel, the heart of the Bible, he says, but now a righteousness, a way back to God has come in the person of Jesus Christ who becomes the law-abiding, perfect human who bears the penalty that should have been ours and is a propitiation, a wrath-absorbing sacrifice, satisfying God's holy and righteous judgment, bearing our sin on the cross, and then rising in victory over it. And now all who will by faith turn away from their own sin, turn away from their law-breaking, turn away from trusting in themselves and their own meager righteousness, and will look to Jesus and trust in Him, will receive grace as a free gift and be saved. And then in Romans chapter 4, he says, but this hasn't just been, you know, God's new plan. This has been God's plan from the beginning. Right standing with God, justification, being right with a holy God has always been by faith. And in Romans chapter 4, he builds this argument that that was how even Abraham was made righteous. And we just went through that, didn't we, as we looked at the first 27 chapters of Genesis and we settled down on how Abraham was made righteous. He wasn't made righteous because he obeyed God's command. He was made righteous because he had faith. No works, but simply faith in God. And that's the point of Romans chapter 4, that we are justified, just like Abraham, even now, by faith and not by works or obedience. And Romans chapter 5 is now this great chapter explaining what justification brings in our life, peace with God. And he builds this argument that just through one man, Adam, came sin into all humanity. Also through one man, Jesus, comes salvation for all those that will turn and trust in Christ. So we are now justified. We have peace with God. We are in right standing with God if we trust in Christ. Which then leads Paul to Romans chapter 6 where he says, now that this justification, this right standing with God doesn't just cause us to live however we want, but if we have truly been made right with God, it will then result in us being now dead to our former way of life, No longer a slave to sin, but now a slave to righteousness, to obey God. But then Paul realizes his own state. And he's, I think, realizing our state in Romans chapter 7. When he says, but you know what? I still do things that I don't want to do. The very thing that I should do, I don't. And the very thing that I don't want to do, I still do, and there's this war inside of me, and he gets, after he explains the gospel so beautifully, he gets to the end of Romans chapter 7, and he says, oh, what a wretched man I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And that's where he ends Romans chapter 7. And so he begins Romans chapter 8, anticipating the despair that might be in the heart of his readers who are saying, okay, Paul, we're tracking with you. We realize we're saved by Jesus' work and that it's supposed to result in this sanctification, this, this ability now to break with our old way of life and live for God in obedience, but yet there's still this sin in us. And so I can, I can imagine my past being justified and taken care of, but what about right now? I mean, I'm still in sin. Am I still right with God? And Paul is saying that they 
there is therefore now not just no past condemnation, but there is now, regardless of the state of your soul right now, if you are in Christ, regardless of how your week has gone, there is now not just therefore no past condemnation, there is no present condemnation, and there is no new or future condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul takes our standing with God out of the present tense, and he goes past, present, and future with it. So this is going to blow your mind, especially if you're like me, and you grew up the son of an English teacher who was always correcting your grammar. I'm still, I call my mom on the phone, or I go home to California, and I'm nervous because I know I'm going to get corrected. And so I'm paying particular attention to tenses, and the Holy Spirit would have not passed my mom's English class. But he's right, right? In his authoring of the tenses of our salvation. Listen to this, okay? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected, past tense, for all time, those who are being sanctified. Now, that would have red ink all over it, unless it was written by the Holy Spirit, right? So, your right standing with God has been set past, present, and future, but yet you are still in the middle of this work going on in your life where you are becoming who you already are, Paul is saying. And that's what Paul is reminding Christians who are discouraged with their salvation and wondering whether or not God is still, is still pleased with them and wondering whether or not they are going to make it to the end. And friends, I think that is one of the great points of Romans chapter 8, to write to Christians whose sleeves are rolled up, who have calluses on their hands, who are fighting sin, and at oftentimes in despair over the state of their soul, he is writing to them to say that if God saved you by his grace, you can be sure that he will bring you safely home. There is therefore now no past, present, or new condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, anchor that in your soul. And he says it is for those and only those who are in Christ. Dear friend, if you are in this sanctuary this morning and you are not yet trusting in Christ, I'm so glad that you're here And we're not going to do any strange manipulative thing, you know. Um, We're not going to try and play on your emotions. I'm not going to try and scare you. Uh, We want to love you. We want to communicate clearly to you what the Bible says and what the truth of the gospel is. But because we love you, because I love you, I, I want you to know that your greatest need is not that you would learn a few techniques on how to improve your life, or that you would improve your ability to treat your spouse, or that you'd be better at managing your anger, or that you need a sort of boost of your self-esteem. Not that those things are unimportant. But if you are not trusting in Christ, and that's what this phrase, in Christ Jesus, means. It means if you're not putting all of your hope for your right standing with your creator God and what Jesus has done and not in what you have done, then what awaits you is condemnation is condemnation. And, I, and, I, and I'm telling you that because we love you and we don't want to 
We don't care about how much, how many people come to this church or what the attendance is. We're, we're not here to just sort of appease you so that you'll keep coming back. We're here to be clear with you about what the gospel says so that you might be warned. And you would turn from trusting in yourself or you would turn from your self-deception, thinking that you can remain living however you want and call yourself a Christian. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so that's, that's the first thing in our outline as we look at this text is this is where we stand. We stand in Christ, justified, not condemned for past, present, and future. Well, let's keep going. Verse 2 and 3 then answer our second question of how we got here to this place for those of us that are in Christ. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Okay, let's, pack, let's unpack that. Let's peel back the layers of this of Paul's logic here in these two verses because they are so important for us to see. This is this really, in just these two uh, verses, he is explaining the gospel. He says in verse 2 that there's this law of the spirit of life that sets you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And he's not talking about a new law when he says the law of the spirit of life. He's really just, that's just shorthand for the gospel, for the work of the spirit in our hearts to open our hearts up to see Jesus and to trust in him. And it frees us from the consequences of the law. The law, God's law, demands perfect obedience. This is what James 2 says in verse 10. He says, Forever, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. I think most of us, I think this is kind of the way my default mode is, is I tend to sort of look around at people around me and I think, eh, I'm not as bad as that guy, right? That's the way, by the way, you young lieutenants, you know, I know that pressure-packed world that you're in out there at the Army. That's kind of the way I used to be in the Army. I'd look at some knucklehead that couldn't put his M16 back together and say, I may not be the sharpest guy in the world, but I'm better than that joker, you know, Right? And I'd look around before I had to go to ranger school and I'd see some knucklehead tripping over himself with a ranger tab. And if that clown can make it through, well, then I can, right? Remember that? Some of you guys are thinking that right now. You're like, if that guy can preach, I can pastor a church. My goodness. This... <laughs> okay, I'm with you. You're probably right, actually. And that's kind of the sort of the horizontal comparison game that we play. And we trick ourselves into thinking that we're okay if we're basically better than the company of buffoons around us. But you have to realize that that's not what the Bible says is demanded of us. The law, God's holiness, his righteous character, demands perfect obedience. And friends, if we're honest with ourselves, we realize that no, there's, there's not one of us that has come even remotely close to that. In fact, if we did even come close to that, but if we fail in even one point, is what James is saying here, we are held accountable for all of it. And I think if we're honest, we realize that we have no hope 
of meeting God's demands for what it means to be a righteous human being. And by the way, if we're, if we're the type of person that judges ourselves on that sort of spectrum of human goodness and we think that we're okay with God because we're relatively better than the next guy, isn't it interesting? Just, just kind of scan the spectrum there. Think of the worst person that has ever lived, maybe some you know, dictator that's killed a lot of people. Let's put him over here. And then just think of maybe the best. Let's, let's put Hitler here as the worst person who's ever lived. And then let's just put over here, you know, for the sake of argument, you know, maybe the, the best person that's ever lived in our minds, maybe a, a recent hero of the faith like a Billy Graham. And we tend to think, you know, I'm, I'm kind of in the middle. Don't we always make the cutoff line of where God would be happy with us and making it kind of right behind me, you know? You know, somewhere in the middle, but, but there's the line. So all you guys over there, like, where's the line? Where's the line? That's the, that's the folly of judging yourself based on human merit or how you stack up to everybody else. Where's the line? And the line is always on the other side of us, isn't it? But that's not the way the Bible takes right standing with God. It says that there is this perfect obedience that God demands to enter into his holy presence. And there is a law that is at work against us. And the consequences of disobeying even one part of it is death. And so what does God do about that? This is Paul's logic. He continues that in response to that predicament that we find ourselves in completely unable to satisfy God's righteous, holy, all-satisfying demands, he, in verse 3, it says, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. So let's look at verse 3 carefully. It says that God has done what the law could not do because it was weakened by flesh. It doesn't mean that God's law is not perfect or that God's law in and of itself is weak. It means that the law is powerless to save. The law is merely like God's, God's ways. God's commands in the Bible are like a light, you know? It's like a light that is turned on in a dark room to expose, you know, all of the dirt and the cockroaches scurrying off, right? The light is not able to clean the mess. It's just able to expose the mess. The law is weakened by our inability to do anything. Have you ever gone to Disney World with a young child? And about midway through the day, it always, you know, going to Disney World is kind of like camping, it's always like you're looking forward to it and you think it's going to be awesome. And then when you get there, you're just, oh, my God. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Maybe some of you like camping. I, I've, I've done some of it. Uh, non-voluntary camping when I was in the Army, so I had enough of it. You know, you're dragging your little kid along and they're doing great for the first hour and then they start to drag and you've, You've, you've taken out a second mortgage just to pay for the admission ticket, and so you're going to get through that day, doggone it, right? And that kid is collapsing on you and folding up like a wet napkin, and you're dragging, you're dragging that little four-year-old along saying, you will have fun. <laughs> and you are weakened by the inability of that child to bear with the demands of that day. 
In the same way, the law, it's not that the law is weak, it's not that God's standard is weak or less than, it's that it is weakened by our flesh, it's weakened by this innate inability that rests in every person to do what God commands us to do. And so the law is like a parent dragging us along in our feeble state. The reformers came up with a threefold use of the law. I think this is very helpful. When you think of the Old Testament and you think of why God would spend so much time uh, outlining commandments for holiness, think of it this way. The three purposes of the law. One is to show us what is right, what is holy, what is good about God's character, to display holiness. Secondly, the law is given to show us what is, what is wrong, what is outside of God's bounds for how we are supposed to live. And then thirdly, and maybe most importantly, the law is to show us what is needed. You see, salvation is never meant to be about our law-abiding. Right standing with God was never meant to be about our ability to nail it or to get it done. But the law, in a sense, is like a, Paul writes this in Galatians 4, he says it's like a, a gracious tutor showing us that we have no hope in and of ourselves. The law, in a way, is supposed to bring us to a place of failure so that we will finally let go of our own efforts and cling to God in Christ. And so isn't that just, I mean, how self-righteousness and kind of fundamentalism and Christians that think they're better than everybody else because of their sort of relative morality, isn't that just foolishness? That's not the point of the imperative of the Bible and the command of God. It's not meant to make us proud because we can do it. It's meant to humble us, to show us that we can't do it, and only Christ can do it for us. And so... The law is weakened by our inability. So what does God do? It says that he sends his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now this is really important. This phrase, the likeness of sinful flesh. It points us to one of the most important points of truth, points of doctrine in the entire Bible. And it is about the nature of Jesus, who he is. Paul says here that he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus is fully God and yet fully human. But unlike us, he is perfectly human. He's sinless. So we need to take note that Paul does not say that Jesus came in sinful flesh because that would make us doubt and question Jesus' sinlessness. And he doesn't say that Jesus came in the likeness of just mere flesh. That would make us doubt his true humanity. But Paul is saying that Jesus, fully God, God became flesh, and that he became as close as possible to us, yet without sinning. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says about the nature of Jesus. Friends, you've, you've got to see this. If you're, if you're new to Christianity, if you've been a Christian for 40 or 50 years, this is one of the most important things you can dwell on. The nature of Jesus, fully God, second person of the Trinity, eternal Godhead, Son of God, fully God, but yet fully human. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. Hebrews 2 verse 17, therefore he, meaning Jesus, had to be made like his brothers, that's us, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, 
to make propitiation. That means that he became the wrath-absorbing, satisfying God's holiness substitute for us to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now Hebrews 4 verse 15, he continues in this line of thinking. He says, for we do not have a high priest, that's speaking of Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let's consider this here for a moment. Jesus has felt every manner of temptation that every person in this room has, is, or ever will be tempted with. But yet he does it completely perfectly because he's fully God and because he's a perfect human, he endures it to the end and resists temptation without sinning. Some of us may say, yeah, well, okay, Brad, that's cool, but, but it was easier for Jesus because, you know, he was God, so it really wasn't that hard for him. Well, I understand that objection, but I would actually take it the other way. I would actually say it's, it's harder for him because of his holiness to endure temptation in the flesh. That's why great athletes never make good coaches. I grew up a Los Angeles Laker fan. That was my third aspiration in life. I wanted to be the quarterback for the San Diego Chargers. Didn't work out. I wanted to be the center fielder for the Los Angeles Dodgers. That didn't work out either. And my third goal was to, uh, to follow Magic Johnson as the point guard for the Los Angeles Lakers. The foolishness of youth. Magic Johnson, yeah, I don't need your, I don't need your encouragement over here. I... Magic Johnson, for my money, I know I'm going to get some emails on this. I'm going to throw it out there. I know some of you people from Chicago are partial to Michael Jordan. For my money, as far as team game, ability to involve it, greatest, greatest player ever. I said it. Okay. But you know what magic was? He was a terrible coach. In fact, he became the head coach of the Lakers for like 10 games, and then he threw up his clipboard in the air and said, I can't handle it, because nobody was as good as him. Right? He couldn't handle condescending to teach these guys who were nowhere near as good as him how to do it. Think of a person who has a perfect pitched voice having to sing in a choir of a bunch of people who couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. And that's what life was for Jesus every second of every day. This perfect, righteous, holy human living in the muck and the mire of people who couldn't even come close to him. And yet he humbled himself and he endured to the end. And he, because he endured to the end and because he has felt everything that we feel, is able to sympathize with us, friends. Is that how you see Jesus? Or do you see a God who is constantly disappointed in your failure? That is not Jesus, friends. His arms are not folded. He does not have a frown on his face. He's not pointing his finger at you. He's not shaking his head at you. He's not the overbearing little league dad who wants you to get a home run every time. He is there. He's with you. He's in it. He's bore the flesh. He has endured the 
sin, the temptation without sin. He is a merciful high priest who is with you and for you, dear Christian friend. And he comes in the likeness of sinful flesh and he dies. What does Paul say there? He dies for sin. God sent him for sin. So Jesus, this holy, righteous, eternal, second person of the Trinity, God, and this completely perfect human where we have disobeyed, he completely obeys, storing up decades of righteousness in his flesh. He then, for sin, lays down his life as a substitute to bear the holiness and punishment and wrath and justice of God for all those that would ever turn and trust in him. That's what that little phrase means, for sin. Jesus died. Listen, get this. You need to, you need to know this point of truth in the Bible, that Jesus died as a substitution for us. He, his atonement, his work on the cross was substitutionary. He died in our place for our sin. He didn't die just merely as an example. Of course, he was an example of what selflessness is. He's the greatest example that has ever been. But friends, the gospel is so much more than that. He dies in our place for our sin. Isaiah in Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament, looking forward to that day when the suffering servant Jesus would be on the cross, says about the sin of God's people that it would be laid on him. The iniquity of us all is laid on Jesus. And friends, because he's God and because he's a perfect human, he is able to satisfy, extinguish, completely take care of all the debt, all the sin, all the condemnation for all the people that would ever turn and trust in him. He is like the most perfect sponge ever that cleans up the worst spill ever. He dries it. As Spurgeon says, he drinks damnation dry. It's gone. That's why there's now no condemnation because Jesus has taken it away. He's taken sin past, present, and future. He's removed it and all of its consequences. So then, why do we wallow in abiding, continuing shame and guilt? I think because it makes us feel good. It sort of appeases our ability to work, to earn our salvation. Um, this may come as a surprise to you, but I'm a tad bit of a control freak. Oh, you're not surprised. Okay, good. I was, I was expecting more of you to go like, oh, yeah, we knew that. Um, back in the day, before they had e-tickets, you know this thing, which totally makes me nervous, and that's part of my control freak thing. Are they really going to be there when I get to the state, to the, you know, the terminal at Delta? We'd fly back to California to visit my family, and Jennifer can tell you this, when we'd get in the van, when we actually had to do these things where you'd print out tickets and take them, and they'd, you know, mail them to you beforehand, remember that? I mean, back in the days, you know, before the internet, and people actually used to go to libraries and check out books and all that kind of stuff. Well, they, um, they would send you the ticket in the mail. And um, Jennifer would always have the tickets. And I would always check with her about 48 times before we got in the car to drive to Atlanta. Do, do you have the tickets? <laughs> do, do, you have, do you have the tickets? She'd say yes. And I just, I just didn't quite trust her that she had the tickets. 
that she could handle that simple task. My brilliant wife, who is, you know, one of the most educated, valedictorian of her high school, honor student in college, medical school, you know, physician. She, she is smarter than me, boys and girls. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> but because of my insane self-absorption and insecurity and control freak nature, I couldn't handle her to hold some pieces of paper to the airport. And so there became this little joke between us where I would just say, I, I'm sorry, I know this is going to only kill the mood, but I need a visual. Can, can, you show, can you show me the tickets? So I, just, I need to see them. And so she began to just, I got a visual, like here. And now that the tickets are electronic, I need to make sure that everybody has their ID. So man, just, just show me that you got your driver's license so we don't drive. Just, just, I just need, and we get in the van to go to California. She's just holding her driver's license there when I get in. I got it. I got it. Friends, uh, I'm being silly, but think about this for a second. You know, what, you know what walking in, if you're a Christian, continued shame and guilt and feelings of condemnation is? You're basically saying to the eternal, perfect, fully God, fully human Savior who bore the weight of your sin and shame on the cross, I don't don't think you got this. I need to, I don't think you can handle it. So I'm gonna gonna crawl up on that cross and I'm gonna take a little bit of this and I'm gonna put it in my pocket and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to nurse this feeling of shame and guilt a little bit more so that it will appease me because I need to feel like I'm actually doing something here to earn my salvation. Right? And it's like we're saying to Jesus, and I, let me, I need a little bit of that. I don't know if you got it. No, we're not, we're not making that conscious thought in our mind. But friends, at the core, that's what, that's what shame is, friends. Friends, do you see the scandal and the beauty and the freeness? He's setting you free from that, free from condemnation, free from shame, free from guilt. Enough of that to your soul, you should say. Enough. Jesus has got it. So how did we get here where we stand? We got here not through our own effort, not because we could abide the law, not because we grew up in church, not because we're Southerners, not because our dad was a deacon, not because we have any gift, not because we read our Bible for 14 days straight, not because we did this or that or any other thing. We got here because of what Christ has done in the cross and in his perfect godness and in his perfect humanity. He has more than enough to remove any punishment and any condemnation and any consequence that is against us. Colossians puts it this way. It says that he removed the record of debts that was against us and triumphed over it. That's what Jesus has done. He's got it. He's got it. So away my soul with shame and abiding guilt. Away my soul with these feelings. So how did we get here? We got here because of what Jesus has done in his life, death, and resurrection. And then finally, 
where do we go from here? Verse 4, and we end with this. He did all of this in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And this is going to be one of the main themes of the rest of Romans. Paul is careful to then qualify and say, Jesus has done all of this, not so that you can just keep standing here and never becoming more like him, but he has done all of this. He set you free from condemnation and judgment and death so that you are now free to obey him and over the course of time become more like Jesus and take pleasure in him and enjoy what it means to follow Jesus. So we've been set free so that we can finally now obey and truly live for God. We are set free in Christ from the tyranny of sin and death and all of its consequences, not so that we can now disobey God and live however we want, but so that we can now finally obey God and enjoy obeying God and loving God with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our soul and all of our strength and love our neighbors as ourselves, which is what the law demands of us. Why is seeing this so important? I think, and I end with this, I think that seeing that where we go from our right standing with God and where we go from understanding there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, I think seeing that is so important because we must see what the real issue is here. It's not our improvement, but our need to be made right before a holy God, friends. That is our greatest need. That's your greatest need. That's my greatest need. And then secondly, we need to see this because I think most of us that grow up in American Christianity have been exposed to the lie that trusting in Jesus is something necessary you kind of need to do as fire insurance to get out of hell, but that it's basically entrance into a joyless existence, a begrudging obedience. But friends, that's not the truth of the gospel. We are set free so that we can finally obey him in ever-increasing joy. And so I'm leaving a life, I'm leaving consequences, I'm leaving sin and death so that I am now free to be right with God and enjoy what it means to give my life away and live for him and obey his law. This morning as we receive communion, we didn't last Sunday on the first Sunday of the month because of our presentation about the capital campaign. So we're doing it this morning. And this morning as we come to the table, we're coming to remember what Jesus has done and where we stand as a result of it. Dear Christian friend, when you come to this table, you're not coming because you've had a good week or because you're relatively better than other people around you. You're coming because of what Jesus has done. You're not coming because you have a better understanding of doctrine than somebody else who hasn't read a John Piper book. 
You're not coming because you like to read Spurgeon. You're not coming because you have a a better understanding of systematic theology or what it means to truly understand the Bible. You're not coming because of any of those things. You're coming because of what Jesus has done. That's why you're able to come to this table. And for those of you on the other side of the spectrum, because don't we, we fall on two ditches, either self-righteous pride or self-loathing despair. So we're not coming to the table because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And we're not banned from the table because of anything that we've done, but we are accepted at the table if we are in Christ because of what Jesus has done. So friends, are you, are you crawling up at the cross and, and, and taking some of your shame and putting it in your pocket so that you can appease yourself like you're working out You're right standing with God through your own effort. Come to this table. Look at this bread and this cup, which points our hearts to Jesus, who has got it. He's got it. It's finished. It's over. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And come to this table and be set free and feast on the beauty that is in Christ and the joy that comes with following him. If you're not a Christian, uh, we are so glad that you're here. We don't want you to come to this table and confess something that you don't yet believe. So if you need time to work out what it means to be a Christian, you need more time, oh, praise God, you need more conversations, oh, we're here to do that for you. But if even today, you look, well, you don't need to go through some process, you don't need to have everything worked out in your mind. You, you, you need to do nothing but look away from yourself and look to Jesus and trust in him and be free in Christ, to be set free from condemnation, to be set free from the judgment of a holy and righteous God, to be set free from yourself. If that is you today, you came into this room not believing that, and now in the course of this time as we're looking at God's word, you believe that, turn away from your sin, turn away from trusting in yourself, and turn to Christ, friends, look to him and be saved, and come to this table for the first time and feast on Christ and his work for you. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, I think of the words of that great hymn. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Father, we come to your table in just a few minutes realizing that our only hope is in Christ in his work, not our own. And I pray that you would make the risen king, the conquering king, so beautiful, so irresistible that you would melt any hard heart in this room and you'd cause them to look and see Jesus. Do it for the glory of your name for the joy of your people, for the salvation of unbelievers in this room. In Christ's name I pray, amen.